Today's scripture is from Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. The angel said to Mary, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, be speaking to us through it, Lord. We are sinful people. We need you to speak and shape us. Be with me as well, though I am also a sinful person as I seek to proclaim it, and I may do it faithfully and clearly. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your word made flesh. Amen. So we just got to say up front, this has been a strange Advent season, hasn't it? Strange because of COVID. We can't do a lot of the things we're used to. We can't gather with some of the people that we would like to see. Everything about our celebrations and our family traditions is kind of upset right now. And it's been a strange season for us at Kish in particular. I know with me being on leave and just the craziness of the last few months, we haven't had our normal Advent sermon series. And then, of course, because we can't gather in person, it just feels off somehow. And yet it is still Christmas. The facts are no different this year than they were before. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has come to work our salvation. God has drawn near to us. The favor of God is with man. That is as true this year as it was last year or any other year. The reality of what we're celebrating hasn't changed. Our challenge this year is that we have to work to have that perspective. We have to change our perspective and be reoriented back towards that reality. And honestly, that issue of perspective is one that creeps up all through the Christian life. We tend to focus, I think, on our situation or on our actions but, but the truth is that to really grow as a Christian behind our situations, behind our actions, what we need are changes of vision, of how we look at the world. We need to have our perspective changed to that of God. And so that's what I want to do this morning, both in terms in some ways of Christmas and also much more broadly in terms of Christianity as a whole. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. It's been on hold, but we're going to be getting back to that. We're actually going to start at this text back in Luke chapter 1 that we briefly touched on as we preached through it some months ago. And then from there, we're going to jump ahead and look at this theme that goes all the way through the Gospel of Luke to try to change and shape our perspective. And I just want to say up front, what we're going to do, we're just going to see two simple but profound truths in these texts. Two truths that are on one level simple to say, but are profound if we can really understand them. And they fit together. To see those two truths, though, and have our perspective changed, let's dive into the text that we heard this morning. So the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and proclaims that she's going to give birth to Jesus. But here is how he describes Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Now that's one of those Bible texts that I think is weird for us because on the one hand, if you've been around the church for a while, that's gonna sound familiar. Maybe even if you haven't, you've maybe heard it read in some Christmas thing. But we tend to misunderstand it because Gabriel is speaking into this story that has been going on for thousands of years that God has been telling in the Old Testament. He's speaking to Mary, this first century Jew, and the words that he uses, if we don't understand their place in that story, don't make sense to us. So very briefly within that story, God calls this people Israel, and then he delivers them out of slavery. But even after they're brought into the promised land, God's people are caught in this cycle of moral decay and foreign oppression. And the reason, we are told, is because they do not have a king. So then God brings David onto the stage as Israel's king. There's this kind of false start with Saul that's a king of judgment, but then David comes as God's anointed king, and David becomes king, and then God makes this set of promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. You don't have to turn there, actually. Keep open to Luke chapter 1, but let me read you parts of those promises in 2 Samuel 7. And listen with your eye towards what we just read in Luke 1, and tell me if this sounds familiar. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did that sound familiar? That is the exact kind of language that Gabriel uses to describe Jesus. That Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. He will have the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So God made these promises earlier in the story to David. And on one level, David probably would have heard that as about Solomon, his biological son. And Solomon does build a house for God. But Solomon's also kind of a mess. And in fact, it's clear that this isn't fully fulfilled in Solomon because Solomon's kingdom is most definitely not established forever. In fact, his son, because of his foolishness, ends up dividing the kingdom and it's torn apart, never to be restored. So because of that, people reading that story have had this hope for a Messiah, a descendant of David, that will fulfill these promises. And that is Jesus. But that word Messiah, which is just another way of taking the word Christ, both of which mean anointed one, is really a way of just saying Jesus is the king. Gabriel is proclaiming that back with King David, God made these promises that Israel has been longing to see fulfilled, and now in Jesus the king has come. So that is our first simple and profound truth. Jesus is a king. Jesus is the king. And we have to understand that if we're going to understand his mission. Now, we don't have kings in our country, and even in our world, right? We're not talking about like Queen Elizabeth in the UK, some figurehead. A king in the ancient world, really, there was two things that he was supposed to do, two things that were central to his mission. One is that the king was supposed to lead his people in battle. 
If you were the king, you were supposed to be the warrior champion for your people. And I don't mean just like come up with some strategy back in your castle. The king's job was to lead from the front, to go out and fight the people's enemies and cast off their oppressors and do battle on behalf of his nation. And then the second thing that a king was supposed to do was to lead his people in righteousness. If you were the king, your task was also to be a moral leader of your people. As the king goes, so goes the people, is one of the themes of the whole Old Testament. Because most of those kings were not good moral leaders, Israel often went astray. So the king in this ancient world is a moral champion, or is a moral leader and a warrior champion. And I would suggest that it's actually in the combination of those two ideas that we correctly understand what Jesus came to do and that it is because of our tendency to focus only on one or the other of those ideas that we often get Jesus wrong. Let me explain. Some Christians, I think, focus only on the work of Jesus, his work, by which we mean his death and resurrection. Jesus died for our sins. And those Christians can discuss that theologically and call people to believe in that. But those Christians often struggle to talk about what we should do. And the reason is because they tend to focus only on Jesus as a warrior champion. He is, to be clear, our warrior champion. Jesus defeats our enemies, sin and hell and death and Satan. He goes out and wins the battle that we cannot win. He wins it for us and graciously gives us his victory. And that is true, but that is incomplete. Because if that is all that you have, then you're left, again, without a clear sense of how to live. And Jesus talked a lot about that. In fact, there's this weird thing that happens if you only focus on Jesus' work, only on him as a warrior champion, where you kind of read, like, the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, and you don't really know what to do with anything until you get to the cross and resurrection. The rest of it just doesn't really fit. On the other hand, there are other people, I think this is maybe the more common error in our day, who focus only on the works Jesus calls us to do. Instead of on the work that he does, they focus on the works that we are supposed to do. They don't really know what to do with the cross and resurrection. Uh, They just want Jesus to kind of tell us how we're supposed to live. And you could see that on focusing on Jesus only as a moral leader. He does lead his people in righteousness and guide us in the way that we should go. And that is good news because Jesus is the perfect righteous king. So we can have real hope that as goes the king, so goes the people. But that is also incomplete. Because if that is all you have, really you're not any different than the Pharisees. Maybe you're trying to be nicer about it, but all that you're left with is a Jesus who tells people to do better and to be better. Or else you try to just downplay Jesus' commands because, let's face it, they're pretty challenging. And that same weird thing happens to you too, right? Where you read the Gospels and you love all that stuff early in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching about how we're supposed to live. But then you get to the climax of the story in the cross and resurrection and you don't know what to do with that. What is it, just a kind of tragic accident, a martyr for a better world? The only way you can understand Jesus fully as the scriptures present him is to recognize that he is both our warrior champion and our moral leader at the same time, and that is because he is our king. But it's even deeper than that. Because the truth is that if you don't have both of those perspectives at the same time, 
you actually misunderstand even the perspective that you think you have. Here's what I mean. If Jesus is not your warrior champion, if you don't see him triumphing over sin and death and hell and his death and resurrection, then your vision for moral obedience actually is going to shrink. It has to. Because think about this. Jesus says, we read this a little earlier in Luke, he says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. That sounds pretty to people until they have to do it. If you treat Jesus as a moral philosopher, his morality is basically impossible. I mean, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, said this. He says, the Christian principle, love your enemies, is good. There's nothing to be said against it, except that it is too difficult for most of us to practice sincerely. Which is to say, if Jesus is a moral leader just setting us a good example, the example that he sets is unattainable. Isn't it? I mean, who has succeeded in living like that? How could we when we live in a cruel and sinful world and we often have cruel and sinful hearts? The only way Jesus can actually call us to pursue the sort of righteousness he gives us is if he is also our warrior champion. If he has fought to make us our own, regardless of our failures in the past, if he welcomes us on the basis of his work as his own because we still fail in the present, and unless he is still working in our hearts, battling against the sin that still dwells within us, unless Jesus is actually fighting those battles for us, we have no hope hope of following him as a moral leader. And at the same time, in the other direction, if Jesus isn't a moral leader and we only think about his work, then our vision of what he does in his victory does nothing. It does nothing. I mean, sometimes you hear these terrible images that people use to describe Jesus, and I'm going to apologize in advance if you've ever used these, but I hear people talk about Jesus as if he's like a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. You know, you roll some doubles or do some bad stuff, but Jesus is there to get you out of the consequences. You talk about Jesus as eternal fire insurance, as if you have some moment where you pray some prayer and Jesus does some stuff, and then nothing else really matters. Just do your thing. The problem with all of that is not just that it fails to see that Jesus is a moral leader, but it also distorts the victory that Jesus came to win. Jesus doesn't just deliver us from going to hell someday. He doesn't just deliver us from the guilt of our sins at the eternal judgment. He does, but he also is working to deliver us from the indwelling power of sin. Jesus is rescuing us from our slavery to sin right now. In Paul's letter to the Romans, um, in its early chapters, he talks about the way that Jesus wins our victory over guilt. But then in Romans 6, he addresses this very issue. He asks, well, what then? Does it matter how we live in the present? And he says, yes, because Jesus' victory also applies to our struggles with sin today. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Jesus died to kill the power of sin in our lives today. That is the victory he won, to win our ability to follow him as a moral leader. 
So again, all of that said, though, the point is Jesus is a king, both our warrior champion and our moral leader. He is God's king come to earth. And the reason we have to start with that is because I think that provides a unifying perspective on the Christian life. I mean, growing up, I'd hear Christians sometimes draw this distinction between knowing Jesus as Savior and knowing Jesus as Lord, which is really a way of saying like, well, you know, you got to know Jesus as your warrior champion. And then maybe later on, you also come to recognize him as a moral leader. And you should do that, but it's not really clear why you have to. No, instead, Scripture would say, Jesus is both of those things all the time. The only way you can come to him is to accept that. In fact, to become a Christian in Scripture really boils down to saying this. Boils down to saying, Jesus is a king. He is God's king. And he is my king. Jesus is a king. He is God's king. And he is my king. And so I am both going to seek to trust in the victory that he's won as my champion and I'm going to seek to follow him in the call of righteousness that he gives. So that is our first simple but profound idea. Jesus is the king. And then our second one builds on the first one. That is that Jesus' kingdom is here now. Jesus' kingdom is here now. This is going to be an even bigger idea than the first. And we have to go on a little journey But the payoff to this is huge. So come along with me. Here's, first of all, let me me try to explain what I think are the two wrong views that people have about Jesus' kingdom. Two wrong views that mess up our perspective on life. I think some of us think of the kingdom as about another time, a future time. That the kingdom of God is what happens when Jesus returns after the final judgment and the new heavens and new earth. Or maybe for some Christian traditions, it's before the final judgment, but Jesus has this millennial reign on earth, and that's the kingdom. But that's in the future. It's not now. We're just waiting for it. And then I think some other Christians have this idea that the kingdom is about another place, a heavenly place. And this one's tricky because it depends on what you mean by heaven. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I think what those people mean by heaven is just this place way far away from here on earth. It's, it's like, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, they say, and they mean something like, I'm a citizen of Mars. And that doesn't, I mean, <laughs> I guess that could be true, but that doesn't really tell us how we're supposed to live. So instead of the kingdom being about another time or another place, let me just show you a few things in the Gospel of Luke. First of all, we already saw this as we were preaching through it. Um, Jesus' gospel, his good news, that's what the word gospel means, his good news, is the kingdom. Here's how, Jesus sum- Jesus, here's how Luke summarizes Jesus' ministry in Luke 4. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus' purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom. And then Jesus brings his disciples along and he actually trains them how to share that good news. In Luke 8, it says Jesus went on throughout throughout cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. And then when Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the gospel, that's their same gospel, it's the kingdom. It says, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The kingdom is the message of Jesus and his disciples and of the church then. 
And that doesn't really make sense if Jesus is just telling them about some future event that's going to happen thousands of years later. But maybe it's possible. So now let's trace another theme, which is that Jesus clearly viewed the kingdom as something that was present, or at least very near, in his ministry. Start in Luke 9. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There are a lot of Bible interpreters who, because they are committed to the assumption that the kingdom is future, they kind of tie themselves up in knots about that verse. But it seems pretty clear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, some of you all aren't even going to die. You're going to, you know, you're going to be alive and you're going to see the kingdom arrive. Or think about, this is how Jesus talks about his ministry of healing and casting out demons. In Luke 10, he says this to the disciples. He's telling them to follow his example, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Or in Luke 11, Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus says, in my healing, in his casting out demons, the kingdom is coming near. The kingdom is upon you. Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, some older translations, if you're reading from like the King James, that says, in your hearts at the end. But given that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, it doesn't really make sense because the kingdom is most definitely not in their hearts. Instead, that, 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 that more modern way of translating it just makes more sense, right? Jesus is saying, it's as simple as this. He's saying, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Why? Because I am the king. <laughs> My kingdom isn't visible yet, but I'm the king, and I'm here in the midst of you, so here is the kingdom of God. Wherever I am, wherever I am working, healing, casting out demons, the kingdom of God is arriving at that place. Or just one more verse, because again, this can be a hard idea for us. At the end of his ministry, Jesus is hanging on the cross between two thieves, very famously. One of the thieves mocks Jesus. But the other thief says this. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he says, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus, whenever that's going to be, remember me. And here is Jesus's response. When is the kingdom? Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The kingdom to Jesus is a present reality. Present in one sense, from his birth, because the king has arrived. Present more fully in his work, and, and really kind of completely arriving in his death and resurrection as he wins that victory and delivers his people. But the point is, from Jesus' perspective, the kingdom is here now. The problem that you might be feeling in your heart when I say that is we're like, but wait, it doesn't feel like that's true. Even though it seems clear from Scripture that that's the case, the world is still a mess. Life is still hard. Why are things still so broken if Jesus' kingdom has arrived? Well, let me give you two other perspectives that maybe will help that. First, Jesus is clear that while the kingdom of God is here, it is also growing. It's here, but it is not complete. So, for example, in Luke 13, Jesus tells two parables about the kingdom. 
Starting in verse 18, he says, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So the kingdom is here, right? It's planted, it's, it's, it's growing, but, but it starts out as a tiny seed. And eventually it will be this great tree that you can't miss, but, but, but that's not yet the reality. Or again in the next verses, he says, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was leavened. So leaven means yeast. And if you've ever baked bread, you know you mix just a little bit of yeast into all of this flour, and you can't even see it, but it causes the whole loaf to grow. So part of why we struggle to see the kingdom is because while it is here, now that process is also ongoing. The growth is still happening. We are not at the end of it yet. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom is not here. So the kingdom's growing. And then the other perspective, the other thing that Jesus would say is that the kingdom is heavenly, not of this earth. It is heavenly. And this is where we have to talk about that idea of heaven. The Gospel of Matthew actually uses the phrase kingdom of heaven uh, to say the same thing that, that Luke uses when Jesus says kingdom of God. They're both talking about the same thing. So what is heaven? And where is heaven? In both Greek and Hebrew, first, the word for heaven is really just the word sky, as in what is above us. Remember, they don't have a conception of like outer space and, you know, atmospheres around globes. So they just mean, look, in, in, in the universe, there's the earth, which is like the ground and everything under it. And then there is the sky. And in that sense, the heavens include stuff way up above our heads, but it's also right here around me, right? This is actually the heavens, the air that is around me. So that's the, the literal sense of the word heaven. And then scripture uses that word figuratively to talk about the place where God dwells. God is pictured as dwelling in heaven. And of course, scripture is very clear, God is a spirit. So there is no sense in which there's a specific location where he lives. He's, he's in a sense everywhere, but he dwells in heaven. But scripture doesn't use that as an image of God being distant. It's not saying he's like way up there in the atmosphere and you can't even see him. God dwelling in the heavens is actually a way of emphasizing God's presence everywhere. Let me just give you one example, Psalm 103. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So God's throne is in the heavens, but the psalmist means by that that his kingdom is everywhere, which is to say he's not on the earth here just in this one place. It's not like he's in Jerusalem, and if we're here, you know, in, in this building on the other side of the planet, that somehow he's not near us. No, his, his kingdom is in the heavens. It extends over the whole of the earth. When we say that God is in heaven, we're actually saying that he is near us in Scripture. He's everywhere, and especially close to his people. Heaven is here, all around us. Or another way to picture that, the theologian N.T. Wright, he describes it like this. He says, heaven and earth in biblical cosmology, which is a fancy way of saying in terms of how the Bible pictures the universe, they're not two different locations within the same continuum of space and matter. They're two different dimensions of God's good creation. Which is to say, it isn't that in terms of location, like the earth is over here and we're on the earth and heaven is over here and Jesus is in heaven and we're divided by space or time somehow. Instead, it's simply saying that like 
that we experience the earth as a sort of visible reality we move through, and we're also, in a sense, moving through the dimension of the heavens. It's also a part of God's good creation. When the Bible talks about this world, when it talks about the earth as something contrasted with heaven, it usually means that on earth there is a system of sin that is opposed to God's reign. Of course, God is still all-powerful and in control ultimately, but his reign is opposed in this world by our sinful hearts, by our sinful actions, and by the sinful systems we set up. And so this world is not heaven. There is a clear divide in scripture, but that doesn't mean that heaven is distant. It simply means that heaven and God's heavenly kingdom and this world are competing in a sense for the same space. That's why we pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, the hope of the Bible story is that at the end, that's what happens. Heaven and earth became one and the dividing wall is torn down. The powers of darkness are defeated and we live in a new heavens and new earth where God dwells fully. So that's the picture, all right? So heaven and earth are both, in a sense, kind of things that we experience around us. But right now, the visible world, which is what we talk about when we talk about earth, the visible world is still the world where God's reign is opposed and where sin is still at work. And heaven is that world that also just bumps right up against the visible world where God's reign is made manifest and unopposed. All right, that's a big idea, I know. But here's the point. Here's the payoff. Here's why we need to understand that. That means that right now you are in God's kingdom. You're not just a citizen of the kingdom of God in the sense that like, well, maybe I'm a U.S. citizen, but I'm in China traveling right now. You're actually dwelling in God's kingdom right now. Or if I can put it more provocatively, you are actually in heaven right now as a Christian. You're actually in heaven right now. And yet, like the question we asked before, you're like, but why? It doesn't feel like it. What are you talking about? And that's fair. But that's because you're also in this world right now. And this world is still at war with heaven. Paul uses the language that we are in the spirit and in the flesh to talk about this same idea. That we still groan in the flesh, longing for the spirit to be revealed. That we still experience the brokenness of this world, longing for heaven to come to earth. But none of that changes the fact that right now, If you are in Jesus Christ and he is your king, then you are in his kingdom. You are in heaven. You are in the presence of God. He is with you and all around you and within you and you are standing before his throne. That is the reality of our lives. And that is the change in perspective that we need. It can be a huge change, I know, but if you really experience that, If your vision really changes so that you can see that, then everything else about Christianity changes as well. If you really understand that the kingdom is here and you are in it right now, then our experience of God's love completely changes. Sometimes, often, I think, we talk about how God loves us and we love God, but it feels like like a long-distance dating relationship, which is miserable, as anyone who's been in one will tell you. You feel disconnected and distant from him. But God loves you in the sense that he is here right now. You're actually living with him in the present. His kingdom has invaded your life and your home and your heart. He's he's here beside me and he's right there beside you, tenderly smiling at you and wrapping his arms around you. He is intimately close to you in this moment in love. 
If you really understand that the kingdom is here right now and we are in it, your whole experience of prayer changes. That you don't have to like go to God in the sense of like get away from everything and throw these prayers up at the sky hoping that somehow they can reach high enough that he will hear them. God is right here with you. You're talking to him the same way that you'd be talking to a friend sitting next to you. If you really understand that the kingdom is here and we are in it, that will transform your struggle against sin. As you seek righteousness, you aren't serving some absent boss. You aren't pursuing some distant ideal. Your struggle right now is in the presence of God, and he is there to assure you of his grace and to support you as you fight. You think about like the way I know some people in 12-step programs, like call a sponsor to get help. Like God's there to support you that way right now in whatever sin you're struggling with. And more than that, in your struggle with sin, because we are in the kingdom of God, that means that the kingdom is actually our truest identity. We are still, at the same time, both saint and sinner. That is true. We both wrestle with sin and are children of God. But it is, our, it is the fact that we're children. It is the fact that we're in heaven. The fact that the Spirit indwells us. That is actually the most true part of who you are. Sin is now the alien invader the thing desperately trying to force its way into your life. It is unnatural for us as citizens of God's kingdom to sin. And if you really understand that the kingdom is here with you now, that will empower your work and mission like nothing else. Remember when Jesus' disciples, they, they were told to go out and heal those they touched and then tell them that the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. And the reason is because the kingdom is with those disciples because Jesus is their king and they're doing the work of the king, Jesus, and that means that they're actually bringing God's kingdom to the place that they're going. That when they touch someone in love, it is God's kingdom touching that person. Do you realize when you move through the world that you have the opportunity to bring the kingdom of God to the people that you meet? Just by living as its citizen, by bearing witness to the king and by doing the works that he calls you to do, that you are actually creating God's kingdom on the earth. One of the ways that the kingdom grows is actually simply because the church grows and goes out into the world doing the works of Jesus. We are the mustard seed, the leaven that works its way through the loaf. I mean, I could just keep going. I mean, when you recognize that we are in God's kingdom, that our king is with us and we are present in it right now, it really does change everything. But instead, here is a question I would just invite you to ask this week to help have that change of perspective, a very concrete way that you can try to bring that vision into your life. Here's what I'm asking you to do. As you move through the next few days, the next week, just pause for a minute in those moments when maybe you don't have something to do and you're tempted to like pull out your phone or find some new task, just pause for a minute and first look around. Look around at your family there at your table. Look around at your coworkers in the place where you work or maybe on the Zoom meeting where you work. Look around at the people at the grocery store, wherever you are, look around and then just say this to yourself. Say, Jesus is my king. His kingdom is here. How can I make it visible? Jesus is my king and his kingdom is here. How can I make that visible in the world? 
Because that's really one of the beautiful things about this truth. You do not have to be the king. Jesus is the king. And you do not have to build the kingdom. The kingdom's already here. All that you have to do is figure out how to make it visible to the people around you, to show it to them in your actions and with your words. So just repeat that to yourself. Jesus is my king. His kingdom is here. How can I make it visible? And then as your heart prompts you to do something, to act out of that or to speak out of that, just do it. Do that gesture of compassion. Apologize for that failure. That act of service and love, just do that thing. Do that knowing that through that the kingdom is being made visible. And do that especially in this season. Because there's a real sense in which that's what Christmas is about. That is the perspective we need on this Christmas season. Yes, this year has been strange and challenging. But Jesus the King has come, and his kingdom is here now. Just as much with the the masks and social distancing and need to stay home and all of that of COVID, it's just as here now as it was last year and as it was 1,500 years ago, whenever. It is here, it has arrived at Christmas with Jesus' birth, and in a sense brought more fully in his death and resurrection. It has never left the world. This age, this sinful system has an expiration date. The darkness is passing away, and the light of his reign will soon be visible for every eye to see. Let's pray. King Jesus, I give you all honor and praise, Lord, as we recognize that you are our king. I pray that you would help our hearts to have a vision for that that we might find great joy in the victory that you have won for us as our warrior champion, that you might assure our hearts of the fact that our sins have been defeated by you, that that, that the devil's grasp on us has been torn off by you, that you are our victorious champion, and at the same time, Lord, that as we see your victory, that that would call us to live as your subjects, to pursue the righteousness and life that you call us to as citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, as you are king and as you reign, I pray that you would assure us of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, that right now we are in the heavenly places with you, and that that would then empower us to move through this world on your mission, showing your rule and reign to those we encounter in acts of service and love by speaking and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Lord, that you would be working through us to bring the peace and hope of your reign to the world that we meet and encounter in our lives. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus, your name, Jesus, King Jesus, Jesus the Anointed One. Amen.